welcome to Shed Life. Awesome. All right. Today we're joined by a very special guest, Dr. Ronan Doyle. He's an assistant professor at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and he specializes in infectious diseases. So it's an absolute treat to have him here. Um, obviously, you got to hear what he says in terms of podcasts, but please do follow him on Twitter. And his handle is Ronan M. Doyle. So yeah, Ronan, how are you, mate? Yeah, I'm very well, man. Thanks for inviting me onto your podcast. Yeah, mate, it's an absolute pleasure to have you in the shed. I'm not going to waste any time, and I'm going to hit you with some uh, some uh, yeah hard questions straight up. And uh, go for it. Yeah, without <laughs> without wasting time. <laughs> What's your thoughts on um, the UK government's response to this pandemic? I mean, I know you're a specialist in the field, and um, I guess the, the the latest news we've just heard is that the UK is now the most worst hit country in terms of deaths so yeah i would love to hear your take on that as a, as a whole yeah so i mean as you say the most deaths now in europe uh for the uk so what can you say other than uh that mistakes have been made in the response like do you know what i mean it's uh it's not it, it's not looking good and it seems to be pretty poor um uh, I think like basically mis- a lot of mistakes were made uh, in the initial outbreak in the UK. So uh, when we had those initial early numbers, uh, I think like January, February time, uh, there was kind of a lot of opportunities for the government to kind of crack down on um cases tracing uh, contacts and stuff like that uh but it seems like from well basically from what i've heard from different sources is that the the initial test that they were using to diagnose those cases was really poor uh, and it had poor what we call sensitivity which means that the a lot of the time when it was testing negative that person was actually in fact positive for coronavirus so a lot of cases were missed who then went out into the community and spread the virus further. And so that then we got to a point where, you know, and we were a couple of weeks behind Italy and, and Spain and stuff like that. But we had this kind of exponential curve growth of cases. And after you hit that point, I think it, it's very hard to it's very hard to contain things. You know, we, we went into lockdown and that has somewhat flattened the curve as they say and it's somewhat controlled cases but you know it it already spread so much in the community that you know now this country has the most you know has the most deaths in europe um but sorry just about in there yeah you, you, mm. you're spotting i mean i i need to correct myself because i think i said the world and you're spotting it was definitely europe yeah, I want to make that sure. I want to make that clear because the USA, I mean, it, it's a bit of a shit show over there. So let's not let's not like let's not get ahead of ourselves. The UK can look at someone and be like, well, at least it isn't that. But um, <laughs> no, you're right because because the first few weeks, like we said, we were all kind of sitting back. We were still going to work. We were coming home, watching the news, and seeing the reports on um, Italy, Spain maybe even France at that time when we thought they were, you know, pretty bad. 
but it was kind of like, it just seemed like nothing was happening. And th- this is what I'm trying to understand. Was it a strategy or was it um, a pure negligence? And maybe that's a bit strong, but, it, you know, I don't know I don't know if it was negligence. I, that's hard to say. I mean, these things are going to come out, aren't they, in, in in years to come, like, you know, as this thing is looked for. You know, there's no... The, the weird thing is there is no shortage of experts in this country in high positions like that. Do you know what I mean? Our chief medical officer has been studying pandemics for 30 years. Um, I, he's new to the job, but, I mean, that's been his field of study. That's his expertise. Um We've got, you know, we've got Public Health England, which has loads of really talented people in all these top jobs. So these aren't, there's no one who doesn't know what they're doing. They, there's just someone has made mistakes. Like, why were we using a test that didn't really work very well? Why do we have a massively underfunded laboratory services attached to the NHS? So like, when we need to ramp up um, contact tracing and testing, we have no uh, um, capacity to actually do that because you know, those, those don't exist anymore. And so we have to set up these kind of huge labs just from scratch. And whenever you have to start from scratch like that, there's going to be problems. Um, yeah. So I, I, I don't, I don't know if it's negligence, but there's definitely been mistakes been made and we don't know exactly who's made those mistakes or how they've happened. The unfortunate thing is there's also obviously been some attempt to cover up those mistakes as well so like to kind of you know i if you've seen some of the like i've got people i know people working in nhs labs who told me that the the initial test that they were using for coronavirus is absolute rubbish and i know for a fact that they now are trying to say that there was never actually a problem with it It, uh, that never actually happened so you know it's embarrassing really But, but is that not a form of negligence though I suppose it, yeah, I know, I know what you mean. Yeah, I suppose it is. I suppose it is. And it's, I, I don't know. It, it, there's too much, uh, there's, you know, it's all a bit too vague at the moment because there's no one owning up to, uh, owning up to anything. And, uh, I, I and there's a like bit. Sorry, sorry. Oh, yeah, I was no, no, I was say. just going to say there's a bit too much, like, it, we're, we're, cause we're right in the middle of the response. There's never going to be that, that, that kind of, uh, uh, outing of negligence isn't going to happen right now. Yeah, you're right because, like you said, we're in the middle of it now. So maybe in the future, you know, once there's a sort of um, a report on it and a, maybe a more, you know, in- inquisitive eye, then yeah. we might actually find out more. But yeah, yeah I mean, it, it's interesting because you said like um, the head of the public health England and this that, and the other that they, they, they're very experienced. But in terms of pandemics, it's very difficult to be experienced in this day and age, right? Because it's not a, it's a, it's a, it's, it's something which maybe a lot of people have studied and know about, mm. but in terms of actual experiencing it and knowing what to do, it's kind of in the UK government, it's, mm. it's a brand new experience, no? Yeah, I, I know what you mean. Yeah. So real, real life, hands-on experience is quite hard to get, especially because actually it's not even just experience of a pandemic, it's experience of a, a respiratory virus pandemic as well, which obviously this country, you know, hasn't really been on the receiving end of like, you know, so uh, you've got other countries who have dealt with the response quite well. So like countries in East Asia, like South Korea, Singapore, China, for example, um, 
so they are countries with actual hands-on experience of a SARS coronavirus epidemic, which happened in 2003. So I don't think that's a coincidence that they also know what they're doing now. You know, it's a very different, it's a very different um, out, yeah. uh, outbreak. That one was, you know, sure. and, you know, absolutely nothing compared to what's happening at the moment. But I, it definitely helps that they've experienced that before and they know what's coming. Whereas in this country, it seems like, you know, you can have very experienced people, but I don't know, it, it, I don't know, it didn't translate very well into preparedness. So, so for thinking about obviously um, the university you work for and stuff, and there's going to be a host of specialists in your field just like you. Um, I'm sure there's obviously people advising the government. They know how much of a threat pandemics are, etc. Um, how comes maybe the lack of preparedness did still exist? Like, what what do you put that down to, kind of? Or do you not think it was a lack of friends? Do you think it was just a a, an, a thing which was so um, unexpected it kind of hit everyone by surprise? Sorry, Matt, I didn't I didn't catch any of that. Your mic cut out completely. Oh shit! Sorry. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> how about how about now? You can get me now. Yeah, yeah, I can hear you now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, sorry about that. Um, no, so I was say, I was basically saying so. Obviously, there's this specialists like you and your university and other people across the country and the world who know about all about these infectious diseases and pandemics. And I know that th- this is a big subject that comes across as is one of the sort of catastrophes to look out for year in, year out. Um, how comes, do you think the government was sort of underprepared or what, what, what do you put, kind of put that down to? Do you think it was just, it took them by surprise or was it their own sort of doing, which is why they're underprepared? I think, it, it, what, I think the problem is, is that, You've got, uh, so if you look at the government as a list of like really serious catastrophes that can hit this country and like an infectious disease pandemic is up there at the top. It is, they know that it's one of the most serious things that can cripple a, a country. Um, so there's no doubt, but be- because they happen so at this scale, so infrequently to have a, to have a kind of uh, a funded, prepared network in place in a country is kind of non-existent because no government is so uh, is no every government is pretty short-sighted in way of funds, and no government will go in for long-term funding for any kind of national preparedness scheme for a pandemic because when it comes to cutting services, that would be the first thing to go. Whenever they want to save money, they would just immediately cut any kind of uh, pandemic preparedness. There is some preparedness for um, a fl- for flu. So because that's seasonal and it kind of hits and we know that it's coming and, you know, it's very serious strains of it can happen. There's kind of preparedness for that. But that doesn't translate to um, any kind of infectious disease hitting this country. So, yeah, it's just kind of trying to, if you, trying to convince politicians that this would be a serious thing that could happen like you know before today it is you know was a was a nightmare you know it's very hard to um tell anyone that these kind of catastrophe scenarios are going to actually happen 
uh, until they happen. There'd be no, there'd be no problem getting like, there's no problem at the moment for any academics to get funding now on, on coronavirus research. Yeah. <laughs> but to, trust me, before <laughs> December 2019, there was hardly anyone studying coronavirus at all around the world. And uh, now every single lab has just switched over completely. If you've an infectious disease academic, you have switched over completely to looking at coronavirus. And that, that's the way it goes. Like, Joe, you know, it happened. It happened back in uh, 2014 with Ebola as well. Uh, that that's the way it goes. It's that it is. You know, of course, it is the hot topic at the moment. Yeah. No. Absolutely, mate. That makes sense. Um, so, in terms of going back to sort of maybe one of the original questions when we said the government was sort of looking at uh, Italy's and France and people like that, you know, Spain. In your opinion, professional opinion, do you think they acted too slow? And what should they have done differently, if anything at all? Yeah, um, yeah, well, everything seems, yeah, everything seems to be a bit too slow. So why people weren't, uh, well, one, you needed, it seems you need a good working test and you needed like actual proper epidemiological work being done suspect cases because you know people are now blaming that you know people are spreading while they're asymptomatic even if that's true you can still t- you if even if you quarantined people who were sim- if you tested and quarantined people who were symptomatic and then also quarantined those people they come at, into contact with the stuff the government is now saying that they're going to do uh and are saying that it's going to work if you'd have did that the first time round, that would also have worked so if you had a, a working test which was able to quarantine people who were positive and their contacts, you're also, the, I mean, the other big one is people people being tested while they were coming into the country as well. You know what I mean? That that there is still, I'm seeing, um, you know, uh, well, I mean, like I live out in West London. You can see planes flying overhead all, all the time. There is no, there's no stop to air travel. There's still people coming in, and there is no, there has never been any kind of attempt to quarantine or test anyone coming in um, uh, from abroad, apart from asking them to self quarantine based on their own volition. Like it's absolutely, you know, it's insane. When I came, like, so I was in uh, Sierra Leone for the um, Ebola crisis in 2014 when we were working in the labs out there. And when I came back into the country, uh, I went through, you know, those um, passport scanners, uh, like the, the the automated ones where you just hold your passport on it and, it, um, yeah, yeah, and you yeah. go through the gate, not not through the guide. Yeah. I went yeah. through that and um, it scanned my passport and obviously it knew I was coming from Sierra Leone and a big red light and alarm started flashing and I was brought away to have my oh, temperature, wow. to have my temperature checked, to be questioned, you know, to to see if ever, like you know see if i was symptomatic um why are they do- i don't know why would you do why would you do that and not take this virus as seriously um you know that, that that's a really good point because you see like like you mentioned in um in um in asia basically and when, when, when they've got their sort of thermometer scanners out there you know those guns where mm. they check if you've got a fever or not mm. they um you know all that stuff like you just mentioned mm. they see where you've been it, it seems like even in the uk now where they're so reluctant to 
advocate the use of masks, mm. right? And and just all these little things, which all right, they may not be the be all and end all, but there's definitely got to be some way that kind of reduces mm. the spread or mm. you know any way of catching someone who's got this kind of stuff. Mm. And it may not be the the final answer, but it's definitely definitely got some purpose. It's doing no harm whatsoever, right? Yeah, someone yeah. wears a well, mask, yeah, definitely yeah. not spreading it more. So yeah, why are they mar- so reluctant? I, I don't know. Mar- yeah, exactly. Well, masks aren't. Yeah, exactly. You know, whether where how useful masks are uh, for the general public is like up for debate. But they're definitely not doing any harm. Like I, I, I can't say why why it's been why the reluctance has been there. You know, it, there's so many there's so many different theories you could come up with. Like you know. There's a lot of, I know there's a, there was a lot of worry that, you know, we were so underprepared. There's so much worry mm-hmm. about access to PPE and who should get it and whether everyone should be, you know, wearing it or whether it should be reserved for, you know, actual staff on the front lines and stuff like that. It, it's hard to say, but yeah, it's, it, it's a weird one, isn't it? It's, um, but that's, that's a good point because I said, I guess if you're, if, if you're a government and you're telling your, your general population, yeah, masks, they're not going to harm you, but they might they might help you. They might help the stop of the spread a little bit. Mm. Then the public might turn around and say, all right, who's going to fund these masks? How, how do I get one? They've got mm. to pay out of my own pocket or are you going to provide me one on my doorstep through mm. the post? Do you know what I mean? Something like that. So maybe that, that that's kind of an issue with that case. But um, mm. yeah, I guess you're saying like in going into Asia, I guess you've got that history of uh, res- res- respiratory kind of um, virus, etc. So they got the the thermometer uh, guns, etc. So, mm. but all yeah. these things, it does sort of shout out a lack of preparedness towards the UK. And uh, I'm not saying it's their fault because, like you said, we've not really ex- witnessed that and experienced that in this mm. in this part of the world, right? Yeah, but like you say, and also that the the every, the information was still there was coming out of China, and it wasn't being acted upon. And we don't we don't really have any good explanation for why yet. Uh, I hope yeah. we end up do getting an explanation why, but at the moment we don't have one. Sorry, just to clarify, so you're saying the um, the information that came from China, um, we heard about it too late from China, or we acted upon it too late. We acted upon it too late. So uh, you know we had good inf- we had good information in January to act upon. Uh, yeah. And either, well, either we act upon it too late or the actions we did were wrong or mistaken. Mm. Um, it, it could be one or the other. Uh, but yeah, like I said, we, we just, we, I think yeah. we just don't know yet. No, yeah, fair enough. I guess, I guess it's really difficult to make a real assessment whilst you're actually still in the middle of it, isn't it? Like you're in the yeah. eye of the storm, I guess. And yeah, yeah. it's really difficult to look back and yeah. figure it out. But just, um, again, using your sort of professional point of view, obviously different countries have taken different approaches, right? Some have been really stringent, really stern. Like if we look at your Hong Kong's and maybe your, your South Korea is obviously good at testing and Hong Kong's, maybe they're really strict on their lockdowns. Um, Australasia, they're, they're, they're doing really well, I guess, because, you know, even like the Premier League and stuff are looking to move some football games out there because their case numbers have really dropped. And yeah, yeah. Um, so what about the countries in Europe in terms of, all right, we've got Sweden who literally uh anti-lockdown if, if you like and mm. their numbers if you look at them compared to the rest of uh, scandinavia it's actually not the greatest 
But then you look at Germany and if you compare it all, what, in your opinion, what should have been the best approach and which countries have kind of done that? Well, well, uh, in my opinion, the best approaches have been what this country is now about to implement, which is a large scale testing, um, tracing, contact tracing, and then quarantining of um, infected people. I mean, obviously, in conjunction, I would also say in conjunction with a lockdown. I know, like Sweden, I, it, it's a bit, it's a bit difficult also at the moment doing straight up comparisons between all countries as well, because obviously numbers of cases depend on how much a country is testing people and who they're testing, and the number of deaths is to do with how a country is reporting their deaths as well. So we've got this thing where you know our deaths like the UK is the obviously the, the stats that I know the best and our deaths are changing all the time based on if it's just hospitals, if it's hospitals and care homes, if it's just over the average uh, number of deaths over the last five years, com- you know, compared to what they would usually be. Um, so, but I think even with all of those caveats, it was just, it's, it's still fairly clear that those countries that had a really good infrastructure to do large-scale testing and like you know solid epidemiological work contract tracing sick people have fared much much better than for example the uk where we didn't really have that infrastructure at all and we've had to start from zero and now we're at a pretty good point but like how many people have died getting there um yeah that's a very yeah. good point. That's a really good point, man. So, I mean, like you said, you mentioned the contract um, tracing sort of methodology that's being rolled out now, and they're doing it in the form of the form of an app. Um, yes. Yeah. Again, how is that the right way to do? It? I know you're using sort of 21st century technology, and you know, technology is the way forward, and using an app. But then there's obviously a lot of uh, moral, maybe. Um, you know, sort of uh, concerns about that. Because mm. if you have, if you're signing up to an app, the, the, you know, there's a lot of data protection breaches that could potentially be there, which you don't know about. Mm. And there's so many different stuff coming out, like um, we, the EU, we're talking about a passport where, you know, they stamp you if you had corona and, mm. or if you haven't had it and it, you know, allows you to freely move across. And mm. I guess that brings up a host of different questions in terms of um, immunity and all that. But yeah. yeah and all that ethics kind of view how how do you feel about that well it's difficult there's there, i don't think there's any part of um a response to a pandemic that doesn't infringe somewhat on people's normal human rights or just normal freedoms actually rather uh so that that you know you you will always be our even if you so an app is interesting because it's not really been not really heard it being done before apart from in the in this current pandemic it's usually traditionally done by actual people on the ground working out through uh questioning people who are sick who they've last been in contact with where they've been then individually getting in uh uh getting in touch with other people as well and and letting them know to quarantine so uh so an app you know if it works is a great idea because it gets it gets that information out way more quickly and it doesn't rely on a questionnaire to a person. A person could lie. A person could, you know, 
especially if you're in a thing like a lockdown, if someone's breaking a lockdown, they generally don't want to admit that they're breaking a lockdown. So um, a, an app can get rid of all of that. It can keep things anonymous. Where, you know, you get into these huge problems of um, like data protection and stuff. And, uh, you know, I, I would want an app to work uh, and you'd want people's data to be safe, whether you can ever promise that. I, I don't. I think is another uh, is another question. I think what was your other your other point was the the immune was it the passport for yeah immune? Well, I mean, yeah, I was, yeah, yeah. This is another real um, interesting issue because obviously countries want to get their economies back into gear as soon as possible, and they want to send people back to work. Uh, you have this problem where that that. Obviously, people want to get back to work as well. There's so many people out of work, people not being paid, uh, people at risk of losing their jobs. Uh, if a a passport that says that you're immune gets you back into the job market quicker than someone who isn't immune, that creates a kind of two-tier system where someone who is immune is suddenly much more employable than someone else. And... Absolutely. You create a system where do people want to start getting infected? Do people want to start getting the virus because they want to get back into work as soon as possible? You know, it's it's it has quite a low case fatality rate. Your odds are good. You're not you're not you're generally not going to die. Um, so it creates a re- it creates a really weird two tier system. And also, there's a lot of questions over how useful these um, antibody tests are for 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 estimating who's immune and who's not immune uh i, I, I guess the thing is though like um like we, I, I read something about south korea earlier this week so obviously their numbers were and the way they handled it all, all on the sort of on paper it looked great mm. right because they had high number tests their death rate was low and they they kept it all under undercover but yeah there was a kate there, there were sort of articles coming out where apparently people who had apparently already had the virus had come out and said, or not come out and said, but come out and tested that they've re- sort of caught it again, if that makes sense. And um, I know then South Korea came out and said, um, actually, the problem was the, the initial test, which was maybe like the UK we were talking about earlier. The, the initial tests were kind of not up to scratch. But mm-hmm. how, do you, how do you know? And when are you certain enough, not you personally, but mm-hmm. in terms of the field, how can you be certain and what's the kind of things you need to go through to make sure you know that once you've got it, you're immune from it. Do you know what I mean? Like, and I guess that that is kind of the basis around how a vaccine is created, right? Because you need to know kind of how how much it's going to mutate on how what's the so, likelihood. Of it. So, a va- a va- how you, well, testing a vaccine, testing a vaccine's efficacy, which is kind of how well it works, is a bit different from working out who's immune and who's not immune. So, you know, a, a vaccine efficacy is generally you can check by like you know how much of a a population is getting infected over time as you introduce a vaccine uh the 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 working out who exactly is immune is a lot is a lot more difficult because with coronaviruses there are a family of viruses which are actually quite common so with you know a lot of the population will have had uh, some sort of coronavirus infection through that throughout their life because some more mild versions of the virus cause like the common cold um 
So when you're trying, so, so we have some sort of, we might be, there is cross reactivity in the antibodies that we have. So when you try and test for them, a lot of people can flag positive when they actually haven't ever been infected by this current pandemic strain. They had an, a, a completely different species uh, infect them. Uh, and that creates this really difficult situation. Um, uh, I mean, tests are now, this is why it's been, it's been taking quite a long time to, to, uh, to work out. I mean, uh, uh, like a few, about a month ago, or maybe a few weeks ago, the government claimed that it bought millions of antibody tests, uh, serology tests to, to actually to test against a uh, population. And it turned out that they, those were all rubbish and I had to get rid of all of them. So, you know, it's taken a long time. There's supposedly some good tests coming out at the moment, which work a little bit better. But generally, trying to work out whether a single person is immune or not is difficult. The way the maths work is so, these tests, they work good enough that if you used it on a population, so millions of people, it would give you a good estimate about how much of the population is immune but to use it on one person it's quite difficult to work out whether they're immune or not oh i see so there's no way at this current moment in time there's no way of saying if someone has had this current strain of coronavirus no no apart apart from if uh, apart from the apart from if they have been tested while they were sick and it was positive so the the test while you are sick is a uh, a nucleic acid test which is a amplification of the genetic material of the virus within your body so they take a sample from you at the moment it's like a nose or a throat swab um and they try and identify the genetic material of the virus within that swab now that test is really sensitive and really specific and it works really really well so if that test comes up positive we're now very sure that you have definitely had the virus but okay. to work out who has had, like, you know, because so many people in, like, the community, I mean, you probably know, I know loads of people, you know loads of people who are saying, I've, I've definitely had it, I've definitely had it. You know, I lost my t- sense of smell about a couple of weeks ago uh, and then, like, my foot hurt for a bit. And, then, you know, and you know, there's loads of people saying that they had coronavirus, but to work out whether they actually did or not is difficult because that's all just past information now. Yeah, because I was barking out back in January. Well, barking out when I heard about Corona, I was like, oh, shit, mate. I'm sure I had it in January because I've been <laughs> the sickest I've ever been. Like, I've never felt like it. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> so, yeah, you're right. A lot of people are doing that now because, they, like you said, mental, uh, mentally-wise, they they want to consider themselves immune, right? They want to mm. say they've had it and now yeah, they're yeah. on the home stretch. They can carry on with the day-to-day life. So Yeah, it's, it's, it's always... It always So this is the same problem you have whenever you you start to question uh, patients about symptoms or you question patients about past symptoms and stuff like that. There's like a recall bias and there's a confirmation bias. People want to have it. People want to think that... And it turns out that there are a lot of infectious diseases out there that give you fever and a continuous cough. Long before this COVID pandemic ever started, there was that. And it turns out that like a, uh, usually what happened. So I was just, I was just going to bind that. I'm just going to say, this sounds a bit like a um, self-induced placebo effect where people are saying like, they think <laughs> they have it. You know what I mean? Like, is that, is that what, yeah, that yeah. Literally, that's what, that's what it sounds like. 
no, no I, I do think that people who say that they've been sick have been sick, but whether they had coronavirus or not is a different question. Uh, fair. So there's this, so like when you have the, 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 like still the data that I'm seeing, even from like the most hard hit countries, seems to be between five and 10% of the population that's had coronavirus. And I, I, I haven't seen any survey data which has asked people how many people think they've had coronavirus, but I will guarantee that it's a lot higher than five and 10%. <laughs> Oh, sorry, Nish, your, your mic's cut out again, it seems. I can't. Can you hear me now? Sorry. Yeah, yeah, I heard you now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, sorry. No, that was my own fault. I was on mute. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's pure human error, don't worry. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, so I was looking at our, um, uh, inference rates and prevalence rates, and there's a lot of stuff going around the internet about forecasting of pandemics and infectious diseases and how they think how they think they basically can predict as well as they can predict the weather. Right. Mm. Um, but the question I had, because if you look at it, pre prevalence, for example, number of total cases in a population, mm -hmm. right. And everyone talks about in the news, about the denominator, mm. which is in this case, I think the, the total population, but mm. the actual numerator, mm. how many people have got the virus, how many cases are there? There's no way of knowing that for sure if you're not testing every single person in the country, right? Mm. Whichever country you're in. So all yeah. these figures and stats, like how accurate are they? Like, is this what really interests me? Yeah. So they, it's it's a thing that you it's a thing that you have to estimate, and it's what they're currently estimating at the moment to try and work out what they call the R zero number. I mean, a lot of people are now saying just the R number, but originally it was the R zero number. And so that's the, the amount of people who were getting infected from an original case. And so you, from that, you need to kind of, they need to roughly work out how many people might have it within the country to work that out. And then that's what they're basing when to release lockdown off. Now, estimating that is, yeah, it, it's purely, it, it's purely mathematical. You're using what you know which in this country is we know pretty well the number of people that have it in hospital. And then you're working out kind of uh, general infectivity rates from that and extrapolating out onto a, a general population. Um, it, it can be, it can be wrong. And if you test it, obviously the more people you test, the better idea you have of the number of people infected. And then therefore like, more kind of uh better idea that you'd have of how it's spreading amongst the population as well uh but generally these um the models that they're using for estimating the number of infected people and the prevalence and uh are, are quite they're, they're quite good uh and they're quite sophisticated but it doesn't mean that they can't also get things wrong and they i think at the start of a pan, they're better now than they were, you know, two or three months ago. Um, yeah. Because we now have a better understanding of how this is spreading. No, fair enough, man. That's, that's a good point actually. But you know, that, that, that brings me again to another question. I mean, 
Fair enough. There's, they're obviously clever enough to um, to maybe give a good insight in terms of the whole population based on whatever data they've got. And that that makes sense. You, all you can do is use the data you've got and expand it out, I guess. And you have to. Yeah, yeah. You have to. Yeah. You're never going to get 100% perfect sample. So mm. that makes complete sense. Um, so in terms of... Um, uh, like you, like you mentioned just now, uh, a few months ago, in terms of positions, uh, uh, let's say of this country, for example. Well, actually, this is a global thing. But the World Health Organization, in my opinion, and I, I can be completely wrong because I'm obviously nowhere near this field. <laughs> but the <laughs> the length of time they took to actually classify this globally as a pandemic, mm. in my opinion, just again looking at literature and. Just un- trying to just get the you know the the high level understanding of what infectious diseases are and you know endemics and pan- pandemics and mm. epidemics etc etc are. In my opinion, it seems like it took them a while to actually um, classify this as a pandemic. Mm. I was just wondering your thoughts now whether that's an accurate statement and what maybe the reasons are for them taking that time because yeah, it's difficult. I think I think the the WHO classifying. Uh, like declaring a pandemic it's kind of like a it, once that happens everything's already like declaring war an act of war like we're we're going to war we're in world war Two. yeah but it's also a kind of it's just an, <laughs> it's like an administrative thing it's like if you're already if you take the war analogy it's like declaring war when everyone's already shooting each other like do you know what i mean like it's, you're, if, <laughs> yeah. once you hear it you're like yeah i, I know it's it's already happening. I can see it. So uh, uh, so I think they basically use it as a, a stick to beat countries into doing to, to doing more. So they're basically going. We're calling it a pandemic because we actually are scared that actually people aren't taking this seriously enough. But really, countries should have been taking it seriously way before that. Like was um, that stick aimed at a certain country by any chance? A sorry, country far out. Was that stick aimed at a certain country? I think I, I think it was I think it was generally aimed at um uh everywhere that wasn't uh Asia at that point. Uh I think <laughs> basically I think it may I may it may have been mainly aimed at Europe but and then also yeah. and then and then by you know knock on by effect U- USA. USA right? Yeah yeah. <laughs> uh but it like you know it's um but once you've once you've got this major epidemic in, so so, let's like work like epidemic is you know, that's a, a single pathogen causing like a large amount of disease in a single country. Yeah, you've got an epidemic on your hands. A pandemic is that happening in multiple con- like continents, countries simultaneously. So once you've already got a pandemic, uh, an epidemic happening in China, where you know that it's in it's already been told to you that it's incredibly infectious human to human transmission. I mean, China is such a well-connected country. There's so many flights out of China going to everywhere in the world. You know that a respiratory virus that is able to transmit human to human is going to become a problem really quickly. Um, Obviously this is easy, easy said in hindsight now, when we like now now that we're sitting around with like you know five and a half million (laughs) cases around the world but uh, but but if you're if you're uh, if you're a you know uh you've got serious like kind of response in your country you take you take that seriously uh and whether the 
the WHO declares it a pandemic or not, I think is, you know, it, it's almost like if you're waiting for them to tell you that it's a problem, then you've already got the problem is already too late. Yeah. No, fair enough. Fair enough, man. Um, um, I, I wanted to ask a question about the etiology of this virus in particular. Um, so I have, um, I've heard so many different sources and people barking out on, you know, where, whatever platform about where this, where the origins of this virus occurred. And uh, I'm hope, I'm, I hope I'm using the actual term correct. First of all, uh, etiology. Yeah, it wouldn't be completely. It woun't be completely the the oranges origin. So yeah, etiology is the causes of the disease. So like, so what if we've got a, a COVID, which is you know coronavirus disease, um, uh, the acronym for that. So what is causing COVID is SARS-CoV-2. So that's severe acute respiratory syndrome coronavirus 2 because coronavirus SARS-CoV-1 was the SARS outbreak in 2003 so this is now CoV-2 they've named it the second one of that so that's the etiology of of this disease and the, then the origins of that virus is is kind of where where that why is that virus now infecting Oh so that's that's actually two different terms etiology a little bit a little bit yeah it's a little okay, bit it's kind of where so what are the origins of this virus why is it now a pandemic strain, whereas before we'd never heard of it. Kind of okay. Thing. Well, actually, yeah. In that, in that case, I'll restructure my question. That's uh, that's definitely um, enhanced my understanding. So, yeah, <laughs> where, where, where do you think this um, uh, virus originated from? Because obviously, there's so many different um, takes on it. People are saying bats and pangolins, and um, even some people, conspiracy theorists. Uh, you know, talking about bioweapon labs and this and the other spillages. Some crazy people are talking about 5G and all that shit. So, mm. again, specialist point of view, it's intrigued to hear your uh, your your sort of uh, uh, understanding of that. Wait, oh, sorry. I've, I can't hear you again, Nanish. Oh, shit. Well, sorry. wait, no, no, yeah, yeah. Oh, you're back. I got you. I got you. You got me, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, sorry, so yeah. Just, uh, Go on. Did, no, no. I was just, I was just going to repeat the question. Uh, did, did you hear that? I was just, I was just basically asking, you know, the the, the different amounts of um, rumors going around, whether it started with bats or pangolins or bio yeah, yeah, labs yeah. or this, that, and the other. What, what's your take on it, and how do you actually know where it came from? Like, what's so, the point of studies that goes into it? So it, it, it's, it's definitely seems to be a, a what we would class as a, a zoonotic infection. So this is a an animal source so this is a, a a virus that exists previously in a different animal population which has crossed over into a human population so there's multiple theories to exactly where this has happened so you know the most likely seems to be this uh animal market in wuhan uh fits the time and the place really well uh, and then there's these theories that you know it seems likely to be from pangolins or perhaps bats, and like then you have these other conspiracy theories as well. Why we know so obviously there's this conspiracy theory that is 
a lab-based virus that uh, that's been made in a lab by China and has somehow escaped into the community. Now, we know that that's not the case, and we know that it's more likely to be from um, from uh, animals, and that's because we know the 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 genome sequence of the virus itself. So, like, if you take a, a virus and a very kind of um, a broad scale is you know it's nucleic acids which is kind of the building blocks of life so we've we're made up of our dna sequences this virus has a an rna sequence which is a single stranded dna sequence uh it has that and then it has a few proteins attached to it it's like at its most basic it's just that it's a those nucleic acids and it's got a bit of a usually viruses have a bit of a capsule and a few different bits of protein sticking out of it really really basic so it has one like people it's so basic that people generally there's an argument about whether a virus is actually a living thing or not so there's viruses have one goal and that is to replicate and then move to another host replicate again and move on so it's just replicate it's a pure replication machine all it wants to do is make more virus that's its only goal in life it's and a photocopier, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's basically uh, photocopying itself. It's <laughs> photocopying itself all the time, and it's getting out there and photocopying itself further. But <laughs> the way what happens is every time it photocopies itself, it's a different picture from the last time. Slightly, very slightly, tiny bit of the picture changes, and these are the random mutations that happen within its genome as it as it spreads. And so those random mutations they leave a, a kind of trail, uh, a picture trail, where you can track how that virus has changed over time. Now, we know that, so we can find the ancestors of the virus that is currently circulating around the world. At the moment, in this pandemic, we can find that in animals, and we can show that it's obviously just evolved from that from that original ancestor virus now you can that like that is a a kind of what we call um genomic epidemiology uh and it's really it's kind of it's it's difficult but kind of it is doable work to track how that virus has changed mutated over time because those those mutations that occur are random and then become fixed and so you can tell that this has not been created in a lab this is not like something that would be generated in a lab there is no lab that is doing this kind of work and there is nowhere that it can escape from and look so much like these viruses that you're that are circulating anyway within these animal populations um so that, like you know we don't know exactly when and where we've got good estimates but we don't exactly know when and where this has come from but we have a pretty good idea that those kind of more wild conspiracy theories are just like pure yeah pure bullshit okay. yeah fair enough <laughs> yeah so you've got enough evidence and um obviously using the um the systems that you use to track viruses back you you're, you're confident basically in saying this is a zoonotic um virus basically spread from animals uh, as opposed to being uh, yeah, yeah. Synth- synthesized uh, bio yeah, uh, yeah. chemically or whatever it might be. 
Yeah. So just a question um, to, to, onto that is the, the zoonotic. Um, uh, again, I'm 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 clutching at straws, and obviously I'm I've got a specialist in front of me, so I'm hoping <laughs> you'll you'll correct me. But I'm assuming from what I've read, that's animal to human sort of transition yeah, yeah. disease. Um, so my question is, how comes we don't? How comes that doesn't occur more frequently then? Like obviously, it, it just seems that something which is perfectly like the perfect storm, you know, in terms of how we are as humans and how we farm and consume animals like mm. it just doesn't occur every other week do you know what i mean yeah why, it, why does that happen it's a really good question it's be- like basically it's down to the fact that the 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 for the, the the chances for all of the things to fall into place for a virus to be to become what is currently happening in this pandemic is really really difficult to happen so you need you know you need a virus that you had a virus that spreads in an animal population. And if you think that we're exposed to probably, you know, hundreds of different pathogens all of the time, which are not specifically dis- evolved with humans uh, and, uh, and are generally for different animals all of the time and nothing actually happens. And this is because the, the, the mutations that need to occur for it to spread to humans to bind to our cells, to be able to integrate into our cells, replicate itself, burst free, and then transmit to another human. For all of that to actually happen is really, really tough. Like it, the, the, the chances of that are really low. And so you, you've got viruses which evolve randomly. Like they're not the, the photocopies that are being made with these slight errors in them. Those errors are random. And so the chances of all of these random mutations happening perfectly uh, to allow a virus which previously didn't infect humans to suddenly be able to bind to our cells is really, really uh, rare. Uh, because the, uh, another thing to keep in mind as well, these, there's, these mutations are happening all of the time. So there's no end to kind of the number of mutations that are happening. And so, the problem with zoonotic infections is, like you say, that the exposure to animals is the issue here. And the fact that, you know, you've got these kind of intensively farmed animals or you've got these kind of markets where uh, animals that don't normally mix with humans or wild animals are butchered in a large scale and you've got like kind of blood to blood contact between humans and animals and stuff like that. That's where you get to see problems. So, you know, if you've got loads of animals penned in together, you've got a really good, um, basically living laboratory where a a respiratory virus can jump from animal to animal, uh, and and swap its genetic material with other viruses, uh, within that animal, uh, what we call recombination and then from that it can make new viruses from that and those viruses by chance might be better at infecting humans than you know than viruses before like there's there's examples of mutations which have caused viruses to become almost like kind of pandemic level so you know you've got uh things like avian flu uh out of 
out of China and stuff where the the virus could infect humans from uh, birds and you know had a mortality rate of around 30% really high much higher than what we currently have with coronavirus but then the they it couldn't spread it didn't have that that like extra you know extra bit of uh, mutation that allows it to transmit human to human so it couldn't transmit human to human and that saved basically what could have been a far far worse outbreak of avian flu than it currently was um uh, so you, yeah, a- you need all of these bits of you know all these bits that exactly align for it to to become this kind of perfect storm that we're currently seeing i get i get i get, I get what you're saying because i guess like you said in terms of if you're looking at governments and um, policy and stuff like that, it's on the forefront of each maybe, uh, I don't know, annual review where they say pandemics that like you mentioned earlier are in the are the most sort of threatening, one of the most threatening sources of catastrophe of humankind, right, each year. Mm-hmm. But I guess, like you said, you kind of need the stars to align, not in a positive way, but for, for one of these pandemics or epidemics to get through and actually cause yeah. serious harm. And that's yeah. why we actually do see it in kind of cycles, and yeah. we have seen many many of them over you know human human history, but yeah, we don't we don't see them daily, I guess, like do you know I mean or yearly. Um, no, but it's an inter- interesting point you made about the avian flu because I, I had a look at the uh, the World Health Organization website uh, for China just out of interest, um, mm. and literally they had they had hundreds, they had pages and pages worth of reports of avian flu. Um, being sort of you know, scrutinized on their website and mm. they put them all out there. And I guess in that sense, it looks like they're quite efficient in terms of getting information out to, uh, you know, transparent information out to the yeah. public and this and the other. But I guess, like you said, for it to actually, for the pieces to fit together and for it to turn into an epidemic or a pandemic, mm. it needs a lot more than just um, a single kind of case. Or It needs you know, that sustained human to human transmission. Uh, to to really to really take off because if it's just animal to human then you know that can be shut down quite quickly you know you can cull the animals or you can just remove that kind of contact uh and that shuts down you know that uh transmission chain yeah no that makes sense actually so doc i was going to ask you vector-borne diseases Mm. against uh zoonosis uh, I'm 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 very aware. I might be saying the, the word completely wrong. Zoonosis. You know. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy to beg on my face for that. But um, like again, I was trying to read the basic literature on that. If you could just explain to us what the difference is, because it seems there's a stark difference, but both are just as kind of prevalent in society, if that makes sense. So vector-borne diseases are stuff that are generally spread by uh, insects. So uh, where it's a kind of, it's a carrier of the, the parasite or something that causes the disease. So the most famous example of that would be malaria, where you're, you, you're not going to catch malaria from someone who has malaria. You'll catch it from the mosquito who passes on the parasite to you. And so that's the kind of difference between, that's the main difference. There's a vector, that, the, the insect in this case, that brings the disease to you. And so they're like, as we know, like malaria is one of the worst kind of the, the largest kind of diseases, infectious diseases on the planet. And it's 
kills you know thousands and thousands and thousands every year and it's um uh it's probably the best known example of a vector borne disease yeah no fair enough yeah and i was i was just intrigued by that because obviously i didn't understand the the pure literature but it just seemed like they were kind of the same thing just from different in quotations yeah <laughs> no no it's, yeah with the vector it's just it's just mainly insect based yeah that's like that's your kind of famous ones there's like there's quite a few like common common ones in that group but uh yeah and mainly like mosquitoes are the your big um your big carriers but you know like uh so you know like uh black you know uh black death in the middle ages the plague yeah, yeah. So that was a vector-borne disease as well. That was fleas and stuff spreading. Oh no way! Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh no way! Yeah. So, um, so that's another vector-borne one. So they can be some of the like you know your worst kind of uh, um, diseases in the planet as well. Uh, there's just there's a lot of bad shit out there, basically. <laughs> <laughs> bad shit, crazy. Man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> We love puns on this uh, in the shed, isn't it? but um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna slightly change tone. I'm gonna ask a question. Um, all right, so I'm, I'm I'm yeah. All right, so what what in your opinion is the effect of climate change on the likelihood of spreading, like the spreading of infectious diseases? Now, I know there's a lot of sort of news about previously thought eradicated diseases which have kind of re-emerged mm. and you know there's plenty of maybe reasons for that and whatnot and we have some examples of um haiti for example where when the earthquake struck there and um mm. they kind of had a, a soaring case of cholera again mm. and uh, we all assumed it was due to the, the sanitation sort of infrastructure getting destroyed but these kind of you know diseases we once thought eradicate why do they re-emerge like what, what's the reason for it yeah i so so definitely uh the way the climate is changing is is gonna change kind of pandemics and inf how infectious diseases spread and stuff the cholera thing in haiti is particularly uh sad because yeah it was it i mean it's a sanitation issue it's also the fact that the the story was that the UN peacekeepers who were actually sent to Haiti brought cholera with them to a country that had previously eradicated it. Ha Haiti didn't have any cases of cholera there. And the what? UN, yeah, these UN peacekeepers <laughs> brought, Are you serious? brought cholera. And then, so you've got a country Bastards. where the, <laughs> you've got a country where the sanitation is absolutely shot to, shot to shit. So if you've got cholera, you had, you had cholera introduced to water supplies, which were already dwindling. And next thing you know, you it, you know it's back in a big way across the entire country, and and a lot of deaths associated with it as well. It's a really really sad story for Haiti. And so with with like if you think like if climate change brings actually this has already really happened. If it brings like mass droughts to uh, uh, countries that are already struggling with you know water supplies you see these massive uh, and already have quite poor sanitation as well. You see these massive outbreaks of cholera within them. Uh, like we saw it um, uh, just with my own work. Uh, uh, it, it hit uh, uh, Zimbabwe in quite a, uh, a bad way last year where they had 
uh, quite a large cholera outbreak in Harare. Uh, so, and you, you with the rising temperatures, you'll also get this uh, uh, thing. So these vector-borne diseases that we're talking about will also be affected as well because it affects how insects uh, act and react. And so all of these insects which might be carrying diseases, you know, you get increased activity in mosquitoes in hot weather and stuff like that. So then you'll get more malaria. You could get malaria spreading to areas of the world that never had malaria before because mosquitoes didn't, wouldn't really like to live in those conditions. Uh, and then, you know, with, um, with harder droughts, you get this kind of massive movement of mosquitoes to wherever the water's left, but in like high temperatures. And, uh, it will, I think it's going to definitely change kind of, uh, the prevalence of what diseases we see in what countries. Yeah. I mean, I get, I get one, one thought of my mind is kind of the, the amount of sort of stuff you see from climate change in terms of ruining natural habitats. If you're really scarce, if you're an animal and you're so scarce of food, you have to, I'm, I'm maybe saying a really, um, uh, you know, extreme, extreme situation, but if you have to revert to something like cannibalism, mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Something like that. Yeah, yeah. You don't know what kind of infections and viruses will sort of, mm. you know, come onto the forefront due to stuff like that because their habitats are so destroyed and their food source is so scarce. Yeah, yeah. Um, that yeah, might be it, another zoonotic. Um, just to- yeah, exactly. And it shoves more animals into smaller, smaller spaces. You know, they have to compete for the for smaller amount of resources. And then again, you've got this mixing that we're talking about, you know, in the same way, like once you, you you see kind of these really bad outbreaks, like look at this country, look at how the, how COVID spread in London compared to everywhere, everywhere else, you know, wherever you have these dense populations and stuff an infectious disease can really take hold because what it needs, it needs to be close to hosts and it needs hosts to be close to each other. And that's the same with all animals. It's not just humans. Um, so yeah, if you destroy habitats, you're forcing in, um, you're forcing infectious diseases to change as well. Ah, yeah, fair enough, man. That's, yeah, that's really interesting subject. Um, all right, mate, we're not going to keep you too much longer. I've got just a couple more quick questions. Want to ask you what we got here. I know you're a busy guy, especially in the midst of a pandemic. So, um, I'm going to ask you your thoughts, maybe especially, you know, towards the UK, but if we're thinking about easing lockdown, lockdown measures and this, that and the other, what's your thoughts upon second and, you know, potentially subsequent waves and how we should really go forward from here? What's the safest and the best way to control this thing? Uh, fortunately, I have no real easy answer. For that. <laughs> I mean, it's a, I am not, I am not in any way, uh, uh, you're the envious. most, <laughs> no, but I'm not. I'm just not envious of anyone who has to make that decision. Honestly, <laughs> it's it. Um, so there is a. You have a kind of you have a dual problem here, where the fact that people are in lockdown means that the virus is in. You know, it, the 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 R zero is falling before below one, so the number of active cases in the community is falling, and generally things are looking up. You know, not. Um, we're, we're we're in a lot better position than we were uh, a month ago 
uh, when we were at, you know, when we were around the peak. Um, and so, but at the same time, you've got this problem where you, you know for sure that as soon as lockdown is released in any meaningful way, there are still enough cases in society that it's quite obvious that we're going to see a second peak of, um, of cases in this country. And I, 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 yeah, it's hard to say what you, what you do about that because you're getting to the point where people, uh, you know, um, there's a, a, a paradox here where like a quite a well-known one where because lockdown is working so well, people don't understand why they're doing the lockdown. So basically why are we sitting around in our homes and I'm not allowed to see anyone or have any, or have a good time, or see anyone I like, or see my family. If there are, there is nothing like things are a lot better than they were before. But things are only a lot better than they were before because we are in lockdown. So we're yeah, in a real sense. Yeah, we're in a real paradox at the moment where you can't really, you know. And then as if we try and keep that up and things get better, there'll be more and more people breaking it. There'll be a you know a a, a real, a, a, a fairly, I would say, significant backlash to any um, kind of future interventions that people want to do. Uh, at the same time, if you do release it, you will have this second wave and people will die. So that's why I'm saying I'm not envious of anyone in the position who has to make decisions on that. Th- think personally, I'd say the, the best thing you could do is to have a re- a really gradual staggered uh break from break from lockdown which you know continues social distancing and is linked to a mass uh contact tracing and testing operation uh where I, I mean that seems to now that i mean you know there's talk now that that's going to be put in place uh, and we'll see what happens but you know if we have this chat a month from now that's the thing like you know things can be completely different like i don't even know when you're you're putting this podcast out but this could all be dated you know even within like a week or two like do you know what i mean yeah yeah 100 yeah, percent. yeah. <laughs> now we'll, we'll go live pretty soon to be fair <laughs> within hours we're good we're good like a shed mate i can look like a fool then in a week <laughs> <laughs> no you're spot on because i i guess you're right because I mean, an ideal scenario, I guess, because you know the risk of having a second and third and et cetera wave mm-hmm. is literally so high once you let people out of lockdown. But if we're talking about risk and reward, where if the numbers of deaths and cases for this pandemic drop, then you start looking at other factors of what happens to people in lockdown and what 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 are their most difficulties, right? Like we're talking about mental health, stability, you know, suicides and maybe domestic abuse, all this kind of stuff. And then we, you got a way up, I guess. So I think, like you said, in my head, it seems the perfect approach is staggered. Mm-hmm. It just, in my, it just can't be so blasé where you just let everyone out, like you know, like schools out, for example, and you open everything up, and mm-hmm. all you're going to get is another second wave, like we saw in the Spanish flu, like mm-hmm. not us personally, but people saw it in like over a hundred years ago, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. No, no. You will, you will, you will. I think that's. I, I, it seems that the government are pretty set on the fact that there will be a second wave, but it seems like what they want to do is keep it just within a kind of level that can be handled by hospitals, which is, you know, um, 
it's a it's a kind of it's a rough thing to kind of think about because you're kind of saying that it's an it, the, there's an inevitability to it you know what i mean inevitability to people getting sick and there's an inevitability to people dying no absolutely but i think one thing which um doesn't get really showcased or maybe the way it's worded or it's not really picked up by the public general public mm. is yeah these lockdown measures may be um sort of you know eased but the reason they're eased is because of the nhs it's not because not in a, not, not in a bad way or derogatory term to the government or that but it's not because they're not expecting deaths or cases. They know they're expecting these numbers still to go up, maybe not to the level of the peak we saw potentially, but they're still expecting a shitload of deaths and all that, right? It's not like we're, we've, we've suddenly got rid of it with a click of a finger. So I think people need to realize that they suddenly think that's, like I said, the analogy schools out, just go wild, let's run, you know, run wild. It's not that case. I think if you're sensible, in my opinion, you'd kind of still, you know, be cautious, very cautious. Mm. If you're uh, in that sort of risk category and you're, you're, you know, you're on the front line and you know mm. this, that, and the other. So mm. I think the message is kind of not really um, that clear. Personally, I think you've mm. really got to interpret. Yeah, yeah. I think people. Yeah, I think. Well, it seems so far people in uh, in this country are pretty. I don't know if I don't know if clued up is the right word, but I think people are being cautious. And looking after themselves, and I think essentially that's what you you, you have to do because um, if you are if you are at risk, uh, there, there, there's such a big disparity between those who are at risk and those who aren't. I think you are at risk. You really need to look after yourself. Where people, I, f- I feel like people who aren't at risk, you know, when you're a bit younger, it's a bit more cavalier attitude to it all. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And and majority of those people will be absolutely fine, and it will just work itself out. Yeah, no, fair enough, man. All right, I'm just going to pose one more question to you before we let you go. I know I've um, overextended your time. You're a busy guy, especially <laughs> right, in the in the eye of the storm that you are at the moment. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to ask your last thoughts on um, future pandemics. I know you label the kind of structure of these things happening regularly, but you need to sort of Kind of, not 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 in a bad way, but you'll kind of be lucky if you're if you're a virus or an infectious disease to actually get through the net and pass all these different stages to make it into the human you know public or domain and be infectious and really. So, how do you see the future going? Because we've heard so many stories that this is kind of going to be a, a the new normal. So, how do you see this sort of affecting public life and how often we're going to see these kind of pandemics or epidemics? Well, I mean, I. There's a, there's there's an argument that they might become more common, but they're fairly they're fairly common already. I mean, the the thing with a future pandemic, I the main thing is it's it's not if it's when. So it could be in the next ten years, it could be in the next twenty years, it could be fifty years, and the scale of the pandemic could change as well. And so this time, you know, we've hit a we've hit a pandemic with. Uh, which is incredibly infectious, you know, spread pretty much everywhere now. It seems to be seems to be able to be passed on quite easily. Um, but we have, thankfully, a, a, a low case fatality rate. You know, the number of deaths compared to the number of people who actually get the disease tends to be fairly low. Now, 
what a pandemic would look like if that case fatality rate was 10%, 20% or higher, I think, you know, is something that needs to be thought about and needs to be prepared for because that is a proper kind of, that is a, a disease where society stops, st- society cannot function normally. At the moment, we're functioning fairly normally, especially in this country where we didn't really even have that much of a lockdown you know everyone goes out everyone seems to be going out whenever they want you know for walks and stuff or you go to the shop when you need to you know you buy buy, buy whatever food it's you want it's not yeah, really yeah, lockdown yeah. is it yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. you know like, it's more like a recommendation it's more like <laughs> it's more like you know yeah do you, do you feel like it yeah cool carry on uh so <laughs> that obviously can't happen if you have like a more serious like a, a, a serious outbreak and there will be a more serious outbreak i mean Oh, like I don't want to blow my own trumpet, but I've been saying f- for a while that this is going to happen. And the most common, the thing that people thought would happen uh, was there'd be another major flu outbreak, you know, on the same scale that we saw with Spanish flu and a lot more serious than we saw with swine flu. Um, but as we've seen with the coronavirus, it can be something new. It can be something novel that we haven't seen before that can jump, uh, that is there. Although that those will be a, a slightly more, those will be slightly rarer because like, as we said, you need to f- fit all of those exact kind of um, perfect storm scenarios for it to be able to jump from, hum- mm. from uh, animals to humans and then become infectious as well. Uh, so that will be rarer, but there is nothing to stop that, you know, happen- happening again. Uh yeah, and I, you know, you hope that after this, that governments start to take it a bit more seriously, and maybe start to value kind of um, the work that people are, and scientists are doing to try and either predict, control, or contain this sort of thing. So, like, you know, to properly fund this kind this kind of work because even from even at your most cynical like even at the most cynical point uh of the way governments operate which is just purely on an economic scale um you can see what it does to to like world economies it crashes them harder than a bunch of greedy bankers so you you got a you got to kind of properly fund the people who are, are are trying to predict and contain these things because the prevention of these pandemics is a you know if we can get to to that point or at least be prepared enough that we can catch them early is a lot better than trying to contain them once they're already fully blown and out in the open absolutely it's a lot cheaper as well right to the yeah yeah to exactly. the whole population exactly exactly awesome all right doc we um we've gone we've run out of time here and um cool. we I personally have had so much fun and interest and <laughs> was good. honestly, no, honestly, I've, I've appreciated it so much. So thank you so uh, much. Cheers, man. No, that was great, man. I had a really good time chatting. Awesome. Well, we're going to invite you back on hopefully very soon. And uh, we would like to hear your thoughts on, uh, in the future. Don't, yeah, don't, pandemic. I don't want to be reminded of things that I said that, that were wrong. I think I said more wrong things than you, but I'm, I'm, I already, I'm... No, it already happened with my uh, 
my, my I said to my barber back in January, I was like, oh, sure, this will blow over and be all right. And then I saw him, I saw him just before lockdown and he was like, are you still saying things are going to blow over? Yeah. And I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> All right. Well, don't worry. I'm not your barber, but the rest of the population will forgive you for that. We want to, we, we want to hear from you again. I want to hear from my barber again. <laughs> no, we most definitely want to hear from you again because you've been so insightful and um, so generous with your time. So I urge everyone who's listening, please um, do follow the doc and uh yeah go on twitter his handle is ronan m doyle ronan m doyle on twitter please follow him and please uh follow this podcast because uh we're gonna we're gonna try our hardest to get back on he's a man in demand i know that for sure so we're very lucky to have him on so um uh doc thanks very much for, uh, for coming on tonight and um we look forward to hearing from you we appreciate it very much it's been a pleasure yeah it's been absolutely fun All right, folks, thanks very much. Stay safe and um, see you on the other side. Bye-bye.